0: There's an interesting study that sociologists have given us in that they have given us names for each generation dating back to about probably the 1900s or so. Each generation is about 15 to 20 years uh, in in length, and it has its own unique characteristics. I put some of these on the board for you. The greatest generation, which was termed by Tom Brokaw, uh, was born 1901 to 1924, The Silent Generation, born 1925 to 1945. We might have a few people in that generation here with us today. Baby Boomers, these came after the the population boom after World War II, 1946 to 1964. Generation X was born in 1965 to 1980. They were the Baby Busters. Generation Y, Millennials, born 1981 to 1996. It might be biased there, but I think that's the best. Um, Generation Z, born 1997 to 2012, and then Generation Alpha, 2010 to 2024. Obviously, those dates, you know, there's a little wiggle room on on both ends. But it's an interesting study, and, and something that you've probably heard, said, or possibly even said yourself is something like this The problem today is with these millennials. Or the problem, yeah, the problem today is with this, this new generation, right? They this, or they don't that, or they whatever it is, and they, you know, we've probably all, all said that, haven't we? However, here's the interesting thing. Each generation that supposedly causes the problems was raised by the generation before it, or maybe a couple steps before it, Right? So maybe some of the problems of the current generation can be traced back to former generations. And if we hold to that logic, and if we trace every problem of a current generation to a a former generation, eventually we would trace ourselves all the way back, all of our generational problems would trace back to generation Adam and Eve, right? And would that be so far from the truth? It probably would not be, because sin messed up everything. Sin messed up everything for generations to come. And we see generational problems that are ongoing ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. What happened in the next generation after them? One of their sons killed one of their sons. And then you see absolute de- just degradation of society for for. A couple thousand years, the flood of Noah, right? Where it says, before the flood of Noah, the thoughts of man were only evil continually. So evil that God wanted to destroy all of them. And you see that continue and continue and continue. The sin and degradation of our generation today is no different than any other generation. Sin has messed up every single generation. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 to 4, he has to instruct one generation to train up the next generation. And then he has to train he has to instruct that generation to obey their parents or obey the previous generation. Why does he have to give us instruction to do that? Because like I told the kids, that doesn't come naturally to us, does it? What comes naturally to us is our sin. Our human nature that is so corrupted by sin causes us to want to disobey. It causes us to want to provoke our children to anger. And the corruption of our human hearts, our human nature, causes generational problems that are rooted in the very core of humanity, the very core of who we are. Therefore, what we need is not a new generation with better hopes, better ideas, better goals to solve all our problems. You ever heard people in the world talk like that? Well, we just need a new generation of people that rise up with better hopes and better ideals and all these. No, we don't need a new generation. Our greatest need and our only hope is regeneration. It is regeneration of the Holy Spirit, whereby he comes into us, gives life to a dead heart, gives life to a dead mind, and creates faith in us, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when your heart and your mind is regenerated, brought from death to life, then you start to think, as Paul instructs us to think. Then you start to think and act and obey like Christ wants us to. In all of the practicalities of Christian living, we've seen a lot of those here, especially in the last half of the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, chapter 5, and here in chapter 6 as well, we see the practicalities of Christian living that a regenerated heart because their mind and their heart have been brought to life. They want to do these things now. It's different. We have been changed. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, 1 to 4, if you cast your eyes there... It is a continuation of Paul's instruction to regenerated people. Those are believers. And his instruction to him, to them in these last few chapters, last few sections, have been that they should live out relationships that are submitted to the Holy Spirit first and then submitted to each other. Jump back to Ephesians 5 verse 18. He said that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit which means we are to come under his control in everything. He fills us. He dominates our being. Then he says, verse 21 of chapter 5, he says we submit to one another in the fear of God. Then one way that that happens is, chapter 5, verse 22, wives should submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Another way that happens is Ephesians 5:25 when it says that husbands are to love their wives. And here in Ephesians 6:1 to 4 is the instruction to children that they are to submit to their parents through obedience and honor. And verse 4 gives us the instruction to parents that they are to bring up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. So this theme that Paul is giving us here, practical family relationships submitted to the spirit and then submitted to each other, he continues that here in Ephesians chapter six, verses one through four. Let's read those verses and then we'll talk about them. Ephesians six, verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. In these few verses here, Paul commands children to submit to their parents, and for parents to submit to bringing up their children in the Lord. I'm going to show you verses one to three first here, and that is first our response to authority our response to authority. Now, we talked about this a little bit with the kids already, but I want to touch on it again briefly here, because think of the progression here. Children obey comes right after husband's love that comes right after wives submit. All of these, children obey, wives submit, husband's love, they are all commands. They are not things we can look at and say, eh, man, eh, I don't really want to do that today. No, they are, we are commanded to do these things. These are not optional thoughts that we, you know, utilize when we want to and just disregard when we don't want to. Children here are told to obey. And when we see children, we can't just think, you know, three, four, five years old. Teenagers, you are still under this command. Now, you might not fancy yourself as a child, and hopefully you don't act like a child anymore, but your guidance and your provision is still granted to you by your parents. Therefore you are still under their control. You are still under their instruction and you are to abide by it. Notice what it says, children are to obey in the Lord. When the command from your parents pleases the Lord, the child is to obey it. And by obeying their parents, they are in essence obeying the Lord because they are obeying the authority that has been ordained by God. Children are also to obey because it is right. It is right. Don't you like doing things that are right? Things that are ordered rightly? That's why God gives us this command, because it's how he ordered the home. He ordered the society to function properly. When parents raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and when children obey, things are right. When children don't obey, that's when things get out of order, Right? When people don't listen, don't do what God has established as right, that's when things get out of order. So I want to make this point here. Children obey is a command to the child. It's also a command to the parents. I'm not a child. How how, how is this a command to me? Who is it that is to make sure that the child, the children, obey? The parents, right? Right? If children are to obey, who is it that is to make sure that that is happening? So the command for children to obey is not optional, but because of a sin nature, they will not want to do it. And so it is the parent's responsibility to ensure that the command for children to obey is heeded by them. Parents, you are the first exposure that a child will have to authority. You are the very first line of defense as it were. The first exposure that a child has to authority. Therefore, it is the parent's responsibility to make sure that the kid learns to obey authority before they leave the home. You are the one that sets that child up for success or for failure. Do your local law enforcement a favor and demand obedience from your child. Do their school teacher a favor and demand obedience from your children. Do his future boss a favor and teach him to obey before he leaves the home. If they do not learn to obey at home, they will struggle with authority everywhere else. And mark this, if they struggle with authority, they will always struggle in every area whether that's the authority of God, of a boss, of a government, or whatever it might be, they will always struggle. Now, it does not just say obey. It takes that command one step further in verse 2. It says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Honor is also a command here. Honor is the attitude behind the action of obedience. So obedience may be the action, it might be doing what you're told. Honor is the attitude behind that action. And it is a command here as well. We said children obey is not optional. Honor your father and mother is not optional as well. In fact, it is the fifth commandment of the 10 commandments back from Exodus chapter 20. And here Paul says that it is the first commandment with a promise specifically attached to it. What's the promise? Verse three, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That promise in verse three is a quote from Exodus 20 verse 12 and Deuteronomy 5 verse 16. Now, it's not a blanket statement that everything's going to just be wonderful for you in life and you're never going to have any problems, right? It's not a promise that if you obey your parents, you are guaranteed a long and successful life. Rather, it is more of a general promise of blessing. John Calvin says it this way. He said, those who show kindness to their parents from whom they derived life are assured by God that in this life, it will be well with them. In some ways, it actually might be a warning towards the opposite. Meaning those who disobey and those who dishonor their parents endanger themselves. So he says, you want things to go well with you. You want your your life to be blessed, honor your parents. Because if you don't, you may actually put yourself in danger. Now, unlike obedience... Honoring parents is a universal command to be universally applied throughout life, right? As an adult, speaking to the adults in, in this room, you don't have the, responsible, the, the responsibility to obey your parents like you did as a child, right? If your parents are still living, you don't have to do everything they tell you to do. You're not under their roof. You're not under their care anymore, but you always, at all times, have the responsibility to Honor them. To honor them. Jesus showed us that when he was on the cross. John 19, verses 25 to 27, in probably his darkest time of suffering, his darkest hour, what did he do? He thought of his mother. Remember, he's hanging there on the cross and he he looks down and he sees his mother and he sees the apostle John there. And he says, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be here anymore to help take care of my mom. And so, John, I'm asking you to step into my place that I would do if I was here. I'm asking you to do that and look after my mother. And so there Christ had in his darkest time of suffering, he, he had a moment there where he was thinking of his mother. You say, well, how does that apply to us? How do we honor our parents as an adult? That's probably going to look different in a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different situations, some that live close by, some that live far away. How do we have the right attitude of honor to our parents? I think we can speak well of them when we can. And there may be some difficulties. There may be some struggles there that have, that have taken place. But in the areas where you can, speak well of them. Thank them for their sacrifice in your life. Take a moment to say thank you for what you've done for me in my life. And probably one of the biggest ways is that we take care of them when the roles reverse, right? And there will come that time when our parents will reach that point of life where we care for them in many ways, the same way they cared for us as a child. And we as adults have to honor our parents, and that could be physically, it could be financially. Don't forget the spiritual health of your parents as they age. And that's where we step in and start. The, those roles start to reverse. Though that looks a little different than it did, and we step in and we, we help. That's honoring our parents. That's a universal command for all of life. So by honor and by obedience, children and adults in some cases are are to submit to their parents. Let's look here at verse 4 though. And as we look here, we see that parents are also supposed to submit to their children. Remember Ephesians 5 verse 21 said, we submit to one another in the fear of God. We submit to one another. How do parents submit to their children? Because when you first say that, it doesn't sound right, does it? No, pal, kids submit to me. No, no, no. How do parents rightly submit to their children? Well, first of all, certainly not in the way the world tells us we are to do it, right? The world has, in some ways, elevated children in just unhealthy ways. And they kind of tell us now that, you know, well, you you submit to your children, you do everything for them. You get anything that they want because you would never want poor little Johnny to be unhappy in any way. You affirm him, you give him anything that you want. Is that the right idea that he has in mind here of, of parents submitting to their children? There's parents like that. And it usually ends in tragedy. They end up being a spoiled bee rat, right? (laughs) And it's not good. And I give you a warning. If your world revolves around your kids, you will set them up for failure because they will eventually realize that other people don't think they are the kings and queens that mommy told them they were. And they struggle to cope with that later in life because they have not been set up to live life in the real world. So how do we submit? Parents are to submit themselves to their children by giving of themselves for what is best for the child. Notice I did not say what the kid wants, but rather what is best for that child. And in making that statement, there is a huge assumption, a gigantic assumption. What's the assumption? That you know what is best for them. Think of the verse in Proverbs 22 6, probably one of the most familiar verses when it comes to parents and children. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go, which makes a huge assumption. What's the assumption? That the parent actually knows the way he should go. You look at this verse here in verse, verse 4, it says, Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. There's a huge assumption there. What's the assumption? that you actually know what the training and admonition of the Lord is. You had better parents, you had better be growing in the Lord if you expect to lead your kids in the Lord, or else it will quickly become the blind leading the blind. The parent's submission to their kids is actually a submission to the word and will of God so that you understand what is the best way for your children to go that's how you submit to your kids by submitting to the word growing in that so that you can lead them in that in verse 4 here we see secondly here our use of authority our use of authority scripture especially the book of proverbs is just just chock full of instruction regarding the parents' right, their responsibility, and their authority to raise and to train their kids. Proverbs 1.8, which is probably one of the key verses of Proverbs to kind of set up the whole book, it says, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. It is the parents' God-given right and responsibility to raise the children God gives to them. It is not the government's responsibility, It is not the community's responsibility. It is not the church's responsibility. Now, can all three of those help supplement the parents? Certainly. They can come alongside and assist. But the parents have the God-given authority and power to raise their children. The problem is a lot of parents want to give that up and some governments want to take it. And we've gotten all messed up in our world. Because parents want to abdicate the responsibility, and there's a lot of governments out there that are very willing to step into that void and take control. Brainwashing children. Scripture is clear, though. The parents have the responsibility. It's your responsibility. You better take it. You better use it. Parents, you are not the quarterback who can hand that ball off to the running back. You cannot throw that over to the wide receivers. No, you must keep the responsibility, you must run with it. It's yours. So the question here in verse 4 is not if you have the authority. Rather, how will you use the authority that you have? All right? That's what he's answering here. How will you use the authority that you have? Look at verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. In our English Bible, verse 4 is addressed to fathers. He's talking to fathers here, and that may, may very well be the target, but that does not mean now mothers don't just, oh, hey, good, I'm off, I'm off the hook here, right? No, you're not left out of this instruction as if, as if you don't also bring up your children. In some instances, you have a lot more time with your children, and your instruction to them will be a lot more so just in quantity than the fathers will be. In fact, the Greek word here translated fathers in some other places does mean parents, in some instances. So translated fathers in our English Bibles, but he actually might have the idea of of parents in general here as well. You say, why does it say fathers though? Well, a couple reasons. One, fathers are held responsible for the direction of their families. And here scripture targets them specifically and says, fathers, you better be, be in gear here Fathers are to be the God-ordained spiritual leaders of the home. So when it says to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, Father, you better take the lead on that. That's your responsibility. I think one of the other things is fathers are probably more prone, because of our demeanor, probably more prone to provoke their children to anger. So when he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, as, you, know, you know, dads, we don't we don't have that nurturing, mothering instinct, stink, do we? We have that rub some dirt on it instinct, and so sometimes we can we can probably be more prone to provoking children to anger. Though I think here the, the, the emphasis of the passage is instruction to both parents. So that's how we're going to run with that going forward. Both parents are in mind here. And Paul here gives us a negative to avoid and a positive to develop. The negative to, to avoid is do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians 3.21, he says something very similarly. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does it mean? What does it mean to provoke our children to anger, and how then do we do it sometimes? Quoting John Calvin again, he says, to provoke our children is to irritate them with unreasonable severity. To irritate them with unreasonable severity. You have to understand the culture here that Paul is writing to. He's writing to the Ephesians, which is a very Romanized area right? Very Roman culture area. And in Roman households at this time during the Ephesian culture, fathers had supreme authority, supreme authority in the home, even to the point of being able to accept or reject a child that is born to them. They say that when a father was, or when a child was born at this time, the child would be put in front of the father, and he, based on maybe gender or whatever, would have the opportunity to either accept it, love it and raise it, or reject it. If he rejected that baby, oftentimes it was taken off and sold into slavery or prostitution. You say, wow, that's a lot, of, uh, a lot of responsibility, a lot of power. Yeah, too much. In this culture, the father was the dominating person that in some ways held the power of life and death. That domination is not leadership. That domination is not love, nor is it healthy for a family, especially a child. And so with this phrase here, do not provoke your children to wrath, Paul warns us against a heavy hand, against a cruel tongue, and against a a sharp spirit. And you may say, well, I would never. I would never provoke my child to wrath, to anger. I would never do that. Yet we all probably have, haven't we? Let I me mean, go through a, kind of a list here, specific ways that we may be guilty of provoking our children to anger and see if any of these, these fit you. When we blame everything on them and they can't seem to do anything right. You ever feel like you're guilty of that with your kids? When nothing they do is quite good enough, behavior isn't good enough, their grades aren't good enough, they're, they're not good enough in sports. Maybe when we try to live out our dreams through them, we provoke them to anger. When we demean them in their aspirations, when we are inconsistent in discipline and in values, when we give them little or no affirmation or words of affection when we are overbearing and unreasonable in our expectations of them. Sometimes it's when we forget that they're kids. And that's hard with young kids especially. Not all behavior is evil. Some of it is just kids being kids. And we have to know the difference between that. Sometimes it's when we compare them to each other or to other kids, if you were only like that kid. When we overprotect them and give them no space to live and to learn. When we overpunish them, you don't need a can to kill a mosquito. When we show favoritism, when we break our promises, those could all be ways that we provoke our children to anger. And as I was putting together that list, I was sitting at my desk and I thought, man, I am a horrible parent. And now that you all feel like horrible parents too, realize only by the grace of God. It's not just by trying harder. It's not by having, you know, a seven-step list of to-dos. It's by the grace of God that we have a chance at raising our kids to the glory of God. By submitting ourselves to Christ. That's why I said your submission to your kids is not submission to your kids. It's submission to the word and the will of God so that you have a chance to raise them in the right way and do what is best for them. Now, notice something else here as well. He says, don't provoke them to anger, but he does not say who or what that anger is directed towards. It's kind of just a blanket statement. Don't provoke them to anger. Well, think about it. Where is that anger directed? What is going through the mind of that child? Where is he he pointing that anger to? It could be against us as parents, right? Right? When, 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 when we say or do things that, that anger could be directed towards us, they're angry and resentful towards their parents because we are inconsistent. We're, we're harsh, we're overbearing, we're domineering. That could be anger towards us. It could be anger towards others. That our bad parenting turns them against other people or they see how we treat other people and they are provoked to treat them, other people the same way. And we've, been, we've provoked them to anger towards other people because of our anger towards other people. It could be anger against what is right. If we are overbearing and have a legalistic approach to Christianity, many children will become angry towards Christianity. And they will eventually turn away from it because they were, they were never taught to develop a relationship with Christ, but were taught to keep rules in order not to get in trouble. That could provoke a child to anger. That could be anger against what is right. Anger against Christianity. It could be anger against God. By provoking them to anger, we give them a bad example of what a father is. And with a bad example of an earthly father, it is by the grace of God that they want anything to do with a heavenly father. And so it could be that. Bad parenting has consequences. And many of them are quite severe. Quite severe. Quite severe. Sometimes the provocation of our kids towards anger, it could be passive, it could be active in our lives. Actively, you know, as, as you know, that, that harsh person, sometimes we want to put our kids in impossible situations so that when they fail, we can dominate them. We can come down hard on them and show how strong we are. And that would be an active way of provoking our kids to anger, but sometimes that might be passive as well. Think about it, if you don't live for the Lord, You aren't faithful in the word and prayer. You're flippant with the church. Your children see that. Now, you never sat them down and taught them to be that way, but they see that and they grow cynical and they grow angry towards God because if you don't do those things, why should they? Why should they care? See, our behaviors and priorities that we think mean nothing may just mean the world to our kids. The things that we say are are throwaway words or throw away actions, or throw away priorities, nobody's nobody's paying attention to any of that that I do, that may just mean the world to your child. Parenting is tough. You can't rent it out to somebody else. By the grace of God, you must do it. So he tells us the negative to avoid. He also tells us the positive to develop, and that is bring them up. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, this does not mean just physically, though physically bringing your child up is a part of it, right? You have the responsibility to give them what they need, food, clothing, shelter, uh, uh, education, those types of things. But it's more than just physical. It's also spiritual and emotional. The word he uses here for bring them up is the same Greek word that he used in 529. It's the word translated in 529 as nourish. It's ektrepho. And so in 529 is translated nourish. He uses that same word here. So we could think of this as bringing up your children could be nourishing them up. Nourishing them up by providing what they need for good growth. Now you would do that for a young plant, right? Those of you that are gardeners, you have a young plant that you want to succeed. You give it good soil. You give it good sunlight, water, fertilizer, Sometimes you put those stakes on it right and tie it to it so it has support. Sometimes you put a fence around it to keep the animals and whatnot out to protect it. So in the same way you would would raise up a plant, you would nourish that plant. That's the same idea for your children. Bring them up, he says. Nourish them up. Give them what they need. Now notice he does not say watch them grow up. He does not say ship them off. He does not say pay someone well to do it. He says, you bring them up. It's your responsibility, parent. How? How do we do it? He says, do it in the training and admonition of the Lord. The training and admonition of the Lord. That's how we do it. Admonition refers to positive instruction for right living. Admonition is positive instruction for right living. The word means to put before the mind. So you must put the right things before the mind of your child and admonish them to do those things. You say, what, is, what are those things? Go to scripture. Admonish them with the truth of Scripture. Use the truth of Scripture. And you know, the passages we just came through in Ephesians 4 and 5 are a great place to start. So I don't know what to teach my children. Teach them this Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Keep the unity. Live together well with your friends, with, with your family, with those people. 425. Don't lie, speak the truth. Admonish them with Scripture. 426. Be angry, but do not sin. 428. Don't steal work hard. 429, speak well. 432, be kind and forgiving. 5.1, teach your kid to imitate God. 5.2, walk in love as Christ does. 5.8, walk in the light of the truth of God. 5.15, walk in wisdom and understand what the will of the Lord is. 5.18, walk in the Holy Spirit. sing praise to God. 5.20, give thanks. There's plenty of instruction. There's plenty of of admonishment to give to our kids, to our young people. So admonish them is to to give them the positive instruction for right living. On the other side of that is training. Training refers to discipline, even by punishment sometimes. We admonish our children to do what is right, to live a life of self-control. And when they deviate from that, when they don't do that, we discipline them with punishment to bring them back into the right order it says that training and that discipline, that admonishment is of the Lord. That training is of the Lord. It's controlled and it's purposeful like the Lord's is for us. Proverbs 19 verse 18 says, Chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. Hebrews 12 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. That's true. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, that refers to God's correction of us, but the principle is true for the discipline of children. Controlled and purposeful discipline like the Lord's discipline of us. How do we do it? How do we train and admonish our children? Do it early, do it often, and do it of the Lord. Do it early. When do I start? When do I start training and admonishing my child? Yesterday. You start yesterday. Start yesterday. Do it early, do it often, and do it of the Lord. Raising children is not a one-time sit-down session where you impart everything that they need to know. No, it's a ton. It's a ton. It's probably millions of little pieces of instruction given over a long period of time. Some of it is taught by what you say. Some of it is caught by what they see you do. My grandpa always said, more is caught than taught. So you have to be careful. More is caught than taught. Notice this in your Bibles as well. You look at Ephesians 6.1. It says that children are to obey parents in the Lord. And parents are to raise children in the training and admonition of the Lord. It's all attached to what God wants us to do through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in the mid-1900s, he said this, It is from God that parents receive their children, and it is to God that they in turn ought to lead them. That's good. It is from God that parents receive their children, and it is to God that they in turn ought to lead them. Which leads us to one final question before we transition to communion. There, there are some today that may be saying, you know, I don't have any kids. God did not grant me that in life. Or my kids have all grown up. You know, they're not in the home anymore. I don't have that instruction. I don't have that opportunity before me. How does this all apply to me? Well, let me tell you this. Children are a blessing to their family. But they are also a huge blessing to their church family. You saw those kids up here earlier today. They are a blessing to their family, but they are a blessing to their church family as well. And you, whether you have kids in the home or not, your responsibility to your church demands that you also take an active role in the spiritual and social upbringing of the children in this church. It demands that. Part of your fellowship, part of your connection to this church is a connection to the children of this church. These children need to hear from you. They need to hear from you what they are hearing from their parents so that they don't look at their parents and think, these people are crazy, they're the only people that think this way. They need to hear it from you. You need to supplement what they're hearing at home. Your example of faithfulness in church or lack thereof will influence them for good or for bad, whether you mean it or not. It will have an impact. Volunteer for VBS, teach a Sunday school class, work in the nursery. Your input is valuable. Parents need your help. I don't think I've ever done this before, but I'm going to quote Hillary Clinton. She famously said, it takes a village to raise a child. I don't know about that, whatever. But I do know this. It definitely takes a church. It absolutely takes a church to raise a child. And every person in that church has a role in the raising of that child. And it is important. Do not check yourself out and say, I don't have any kids. I don't have any kids in home. My time's over. No, you will make an impact. You will make a difference in the next generation, right? That generation that causes all those problems. You make a difference in there. Don't give up. Make a difference in those young people. What is done towards this generation will have a trickle-down effect on generations to come. Take a stand. Do what God's called you to do. And parents raising your children, those who don't have children at home, get involved in whatever way you can in the church, in the community. I'm gonna ask the men to come forward as we transition to communion. And as they come forward and we enter communion... I want to draw your attention back, if you wouldn't just listen for for a couple moments. Let's draw our attention back to the command for obedience. Remember we read this morning, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And let's remind ourselves as we enter into communion, we think through Christ, let's remind ourselves of the one person who obeyed that command perfectly. The only one who can say they perfectly obeyed the, the command